on an all-new episode of the LP Literature in Practice. Just because we have biases doesn't make us bad teachers, doesn't make us bad people. However, we need to be able to recognize that we have some biases. And so we can try to find ways that we can overcome um, those biases or at least mitigate them as, as, as much as possible. In the education profession, equity work can get deeply deferred or get really messy really fast. This is because it can reveal so much about professional and personal beliefs that are consequential to our students receiving grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. And these problematic perceptions can be emboldened by policies. I got a chance to talk with Sheldon Akins to discuss his book, Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. Join us as we discuss the bold, graceful, and practical ways equity can be cultivated in schools. This is the LP. Welcome, folks, and fam of all walks and talks to the LP podcast, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Today's guest is one of the hardest working individuals in the school and equity business. Um, it's Sheldon Aikens, and we're going to discuss his book, Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. Uh, Sheldon Aikens is the director of the Leading Equity Center, uh, the host of the Leading Equity podcast, and the host of the Art of Advocacy live stream. He has taught all over this planet, or, or at least all over the Western Hemisphere, it feels like. Um, we have none other than Dr. Sheldon Aikens. How's it going, bro? Hey, listen, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm doing well. It's a lovely day. There's snow outside here in Idaho. And uh, I'm ready to get to it. So appreciate you having me on. No doubt. No doubt. So the first question we asked our guests, what was your favorite text as a child? What was your favorite text as an adolescent? And what is your favorite text as an adult? So that's okay. Starting as a child, I used to love Indian in and Cupboard. Um, it's probably not the most politically correct name. Yeah, yeah. At this I, point. I thought about growing up. That. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> that, that name didn't age well, but yeah, continue. That movie was big, though. <laughs> yeah, as I said it out loud, I was like, oh, shoot. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's that was, I used, I mean, I read that book multiple times uh, as a kid. Uh, if we were to go back a little further, Berenson Bears, I was a, I, I was a big fan of Berenson Bears back yeah. in the day, too. Um, but as far as chapter books, yeah, in the, in the cover was was really good for me. Uh, I used to love reading that one. And then uh, we could go into uh, Paulo Freire, uh, Pedagogy of the, of the Oppressed Word. is probably my one, probably my my favorite book of all time. I mean, it just it's crazy how he wrote this book back in the seventies, yep. and like that stuff's still relevant today. Like it's like everything he said still applies post COVID and everything. It's just like yo, this is. Like you, it's like almost like you knew. Yeah. And and I love that one. So I always recommend that as, especially for educators, I always recommend that as a as a go-to book. You know, if you're just trying to get into equity work or any of those kind of things, if social justice is important to you, that's my favorite book of all time. Yeah, no, it's up there for me as well. And, you know, when, when I think about grade level engaging, affirming and meaningful instruction, I know he probably wouldn't necessarily like resonate with the grade level piece, so to speak, in terms of this idea of mm -hmm. grades, but like meaningful and like kind of rigorous experiences, I'm sure he would. Uh, but like, I just think of like how that book has like seeded so many other ways of thinking about how to help people 
think for themselves um, and, and, and grow skills and consciousness. I've always mispronounced the exact word he uses for like this idea of critical consciousness, so I'll leave it alone. But like, how do you get people to do that through the written word and through applying it to their own context? Um, it's a really important book. Let's talk about your book. Who is your text designed for? We'll start with that very simple question. As far as the the, the podcast, my podcast is called Leading Equity. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a culmination of, I mean, just being a black man living in Idaho. Um, people ask me, what do you think about living here in Idaho? You know, do you like it here? And, and I, I would say, ultimately, I have enjoyed my experience here because had I not moved to this state where 0.8% black people I would not have started a podcast. I would not have started the Lead and Equity Center. I would not have written the book. When I first moved out here, I mean, I, I grew up in the South originally. I'm from Houston. And so everything was out open. It's blatant. You know, you know where not to go, all these different things. But here, there was a lot of subtleties that I just didn't really know what was happening. I just knew something was off. But I didn't really know what was happening. So I wrote this book for those individuals who, I mean, educators in, in general, right? But yeah. I wanted to make it in a way that if this is something where it's like, you know, I just waking up and I'm I'm new to, you know, I'm wanting to do equity work or, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just not as familiar to the person that this is my lived experience every single day. I wanted to, to meet those needs for everyone because people like me, where it's like, I experience these things all the time and I don't necessarily have the language. I don't necessarily know what it's called. Yeah. I don't have the technical side of it. Uh, however, someone else who's brand new to it is like, okay, I, I don't know that I have these biases. I don't know I have these these things or I need to develop these type of relationships or I don't really know how to connect with folks that are have just different lived experiences than what I have. Word. And so that's who the book is for. But overall, it's for educators. If anything, I would say maybe it's more teacher heavy. But I think our school leaders, our support staff, paraprofessionals, anyone that that works directly with children, I think could benefit from this book. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about your experience in that state. And it sounded like that was like a wider experience you had. And, you know, teachers, the people you name, principals, they're part of the wider population. So therefore, there's going to be implicit bias within them and how mm -hmm. they interact with folks as well. Can you talk a bit about how implicit bias impacts high quality uh, instruction? You know, I, I think we, we, we might want to define implicit bias because sometimes people hear the word bias and they just think, oh, mm -hmm. man, you know, not me. And I remember I was working with an individual uh, teacher who, you know, her, her principal asked me to do a little bit of cultural sensitivity uh, for her. She, she had a couple situations that warranted uh, some HR involvement and interaction and they uh, enlisted for me to support her. And, and I remember I didn't define implicit bias. And so she just heard the word bias and just off the top, she just shut down. Mm. She's like, not me. How dare you? You know, the, essentially she said, how dare you? Yeah. Call me bias. And, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not this. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, we all have biases, right? I'm not calling you this or that. But the way I, I don't want to just blame news media outlets, but I think sometimes the way social interactions has framed the word implicit bias, it makes it sound as if it's something negative. It is it is part of who we are as human, our human mm. being like we, we are human. We're natural. We tend to gravitate towards people that have a lot of the similarities that we have. Married people hang around married people, people with kids hang around people with kids. You know, 
depending on what news stations we watch, those are things that are going to impact the way we view and shape the world. So for for those who want to do this work, I think it's very important that we understand that we all have biases. And they're those unconscious thoughts, assumptions, sometimes they're based off of stereotypes, sometimes they're based off of lived experiences, but they're unconscious. Yeah. Okay, we're not doing these things on purpose. Again, I do this work all the time. I tell people, look, I, I do trainings all the time. And guess what? I have biases. Yeah. Right. We all do. We all have preferences and things like that. Make we make assumptions. And my kids, you know, I got a 13 year old and I got an 11 year old, and they call me all the time, Daddy, Daddy, being biased. Yeah. Right now, Daddy, that's and, and they know they know it. They're like, Daddy, that's confirmation bias. <laughs> Daddy, that's confirmation. <laughs> uh, that is affinity bias, Daddy. Yeah. Like, I mean, they know that's these things up. at the young age. So you know, it's it's something that's built in within all of us. It's 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 not doesn't make us bad people. What I try to, to share share with folks, especially those who are reading the book, you know, that's where we start. We start with the biases. And I say, look, just because we have biases doesn't make us bad teachers, doesn't make us bad people. However, we need to be able to recognize that we have some biases. And so we can try to find ways that we can overcome um, those biases or at least mitigate them as, as, as much as possible. I don't believe that reading one chapter in my book or taking a, a one hour workshop is going to eradicate all biases that are out there we're going to continue to have them but at least we need to be mindful and have some self-awareness that yeah i do have some biases maybe someone called me out maybe someone brought this to my attention how do i respond how to react am i going to get defensive uh like the woman i was telling you about earlier or am i going to sit there and listen you know what okay I didn't see it that way. That wasn't my intentions. However, I'm I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. Uh, let's let let me see where you're coming from and see what I did that might have triggered you in that way, or at least validated in your mind that yeah, he's being bi biased in that situation. And where can we go from there? If a teacher makes the choice to not reflect on their biases and they have a mm -hmm. curriculum to teach that day. How may their biases show up during those instructional moments? I mean, some of the basic things is just like simple as, you know, we tend to teach the way we were taught. Yeah. You know, if we're used to, you know, a teacher standing up front, you know, this is how it was when I was a kid. Teacher stands up in front, teaches a lesson, and then they expect to show that we've learned something via a quiz, some sort of an assessment or whatever it is. It might be written test, it might be multiple choice, whatever it is. But that's that tends to be kind of the standard way, stage on the stage type of mentality. We tend to teach the way that we we prefer to be taught. We tend to teach the way that, or, or we like to, you know, I, I'm a former history teacher. I'll be honest, I used to go really hard on some black history. Yeah. <laughs> you know, February or whenever, I'd, I'd, I'd go all out. But then there was other times where it's like certain history, historical events and, and dates. I didn't really, I didn't, I, I wasn't really into it. No. And it wasn't my favorite part. You know, it wasn't my favorite part of history. And so I taught it. Yeah, I taught it. I hit those standards. However, I didn't go out as much as I went out on subjects that were my favorite, uh, things that I really resonated with. Well, I could tell a great story about this event. But maybe it's another event or something else. Yeah, yeah, we'll brush over. We'll cover it. We'll cover it. We say we did. So yeah. those little things that we do, again, human beings, and I'll admit I, I used to do it, right? For sure. So sometimes, yeah, I might be a science teacher, but, yeah, there might be certain topics and within that science lesson or in that textbook that, you know, it's just not my favorite or I, I don't understand as much. 
And so I don't necessarily push it as hard. Um, so those simple things that we we might do, again, that are often overlooked that we don't always talk about when it comes to curriculum and instruction. Yeah. Thank you for naming the the academic because there, there can be like a cultural bias. Right. Or, or mm-hmm. gender bias. Yeah. And you talk about uh, you talk about different layers and types of bias. But I also yeah. appreciate the you just naming like the academic bias, like straight up not knowing like a skill set or a content set. Right. And that impacting um, you know, what you lean toward in terms of your in, lean mm-hmm. into in your instruction and what you don't um, and how important it is to really see that because, you know, what kids know and learn is impacted by that bias as well. Another question I want to ask you is if a teacher decided to see all their biases mm-hmm. and reflect and redress them in their instruction, and one way they do that is pulling in student interests, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily all the way resonate with their own. They want to do this, but the curricular control is low. It's prescribed. It's They're expected to follow it by the letter, but it doesn't always lend to integrating student interests, especially the kind that they were that they discovered through lowering their bias. Like, what would you recommend to a teacher in that situation? Find another job. Yeah, mm. Another school. No, no, I'm just, <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, think, that might be, that might be, that might be what you have to do, but. You know, I'm joking, <laughs> but I mean, if there's an opportunity, so here, here's my thing. I, yeah. I mean, as far as education goes and being a teacher, you know, I think you want, you know, we, 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 we joke around sometimes and we say, you know, whenever you're being interviewed, by a principal, you also need to be interviewing that school, that mm. that administrator as well. See yeah. if this is a not only is it a, is it important for the administrator to know that you're a good fit for their school climate and culture, but also it needs to be reciprocated, right? And so we need to make sure that those questions are we're asking questions too. Well, what is your take on social justice or equity in education or inclusion? What are your thoughts, Mister or Mrs. Principal? Like. Those are some questions that we could be asking as well, be so you don't get put into these situations. You know, how how flexible is it for me to be able to create my lessons, you know, beyond yeah. standards? So like, am, am I allowed to be able to go beyond? You know, those are some questions that we want to ask, especially when we're going through the interview process and, you know, those kind of things. However, however, let's say you're already in the situation, you're already there. And now you're finding out your books are being banned or now you're finding out that you got to utilize these, this curriculum that is word for word. This is how we got to do it. So in those type of situations, I always say, look at my administration and say, okay, our, I, I, I got some questions. I, I want to talk about this. Can, are you open to discussion or if this is set solid, go, whatever, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. You have to, you have to operate within those parameters. Um, another option, however, I always say use your students. Your students will not get fired. Okay, you mm-hmm. cannot. Your students will not get fired. And so, if you support them and say, "How do you feel about these lessons that we're teaching that we have to teach?" Do you feel like your voice is being heard? Do you feel like you're seeing yourself within this content, within this curriculum? If not, what can we do about that? Can we write a letter to somebody? Can we? Can we? Uh, uh, schedule a, a walkout. Can we, is there, are there some things that we can do to make change? Okay. Sometimes teachers or administrators and folks will say, well, I can't do it. I don't have the power because again, 
my job is in jeopardy, right? I I'm, I, I got to make sure that these lights are on at home. Yeah. And so I say, utilize your students. Are there things that students can do to take action to support you to be able to have that freedom and flexibility in order to be able to teach the lesson that they deserve? Some of those questions and some of those steps remind me of what you talked about a lot in your book, this uh, idea of creating a decolonial atmosphere. Can you speak even more about that? Well, our, our, our educational system is, is built off of, you know, the results of industrial revolution. And, and honestly, let's, let's keep it real. I mean, back during that time, the curriculum wasn't built for folks that look like you and I. Okay? Yeah. Uh, it, it was, for, you know, it was for, for white men and, and the elitist, elite white, white men, not just all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was set up a certain way. Uh, I, I have a quote within the book and, I, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't know off the top of my head, but essentially Thomas Jefferson said, we want to separate the, the, the learn from the skill. Basically it was something where he's like, like the genius and the know, rubbish kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. From the rubbish. Right. Right. And so essentially he's saying, um, you know, we recognize that there's, you know, they were already tracking kids. You know, you know, these are some some folks, you know, they, they need to go this lane and then these kids and they need to go this lane. All right. They were doing that back then. And so, like I said, we still have the same system results oriented where it's, it's, it's great it's from the top down. And there's really not a lot of students, student centeredness. OK, we're not really getting a lot of student voice, a lot allowing students co-teaching and allowing those kind of things. Those are some simple things that we can do to decolonize our classroom. Like I'm a big supporter of getting rid of grades. I know that that's sometimes a controversial topic because, oh, well, what about GPAs and how are we going to get into college and all these things? Well, the systems are set up in a way so that you have to have GPAs and you have to have those grades. But if we were to really revisit how that looks and, and think about, for example, during COVID times, right? We had schools that shut down. And then what happened? We had a lot of parents that were able to, you know, we well, we were, as a parent, you know, my kid was in the first grade, I had another one. Our other child was in the fourth grade during that time. I had to try to teach them and try to work at the same time. Mm-hmm. However, my my neighbors down the street, they could pay a tutor, a college student, to to work with the kids and do the stuff for them. And so that that's alleviated a lot of the pressure. But we all get graded the same way, right? The kids get graded the same way. And so those grades don't necessarily reflect a student's ability to, or, or their knowledge, if, if you will, of, of the content, right? Because there's so many different variables and factors. You got children that, you know, kids, teenagers that got to work late at night. You got folks that are having to babysit. You got folks that have this and have that. And then now they're expected to come to school and get 100% on their grades. So that's one way to eradicate or change the decolonized system of education, just getting rid of grades. You know, there's little things that we could do to kind of change things. I was really hoping that once COVID happened, that we, we would make some changes and slowly but surely we're kind of back to the original format of what our educational system looks like. That has been fascinating to watch. Maybe there's already literature on that, but it is amazing to see how pretty quickly a lot of things that probably should have changed went right yeah. back to being the same as, you know, things started to stabilize a bit with, with COVID. What would you recommend take place? Because I, I get the argument for like, you know, do we need traditional grading systems? 
Mm-hmm. And while, you know, this podcast does support grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction, I know at the core of that means like the, the seeking of academic success of mastery, right? And so mm-hmm. what are ways you, do you believe that that can be pursued without necessarily having the, the, the limitations that you described within like a grading system that as we currently exercise it? I think some simple things that we do, and, and I've done it before, is, you know, for example, you get an F, the 50 and below, you can get a zero, and that, that counts as the yeah. F versus a 50. It counts, as, and it's really hard to make up a zero than it is to make up a 50%. You know, those little things kind of skew. Again, does it re, does it accurately reflect a student's knowledge or understanding? I think those are some things that we really need to focus on. Um, sometimes I see, you know, teachers will mark 10% off or every day late and all these different things. You're great in behavior and you're not necessarily, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't show an accurate res, res, reflection of a student's ability or knowledge to be able to do the work. Um, I think I'm an advocate for universal design for learning. Yeah. And that's, that's a one way that we can start as well. Um, you know, for having a special ed background and, and thinking about, again, sometimes, again, as going back to the bias conversation is, well, I'm a teacher. I wanted you to do a 10 page paper mm. and it needs to be double space times new Roman. And it needs to have five, re- you know, five citations, right? You know, yeah. that's pretty standard, right? However, guess what? Maybe that works for some of your kids, but you have some other kids that are very creative in a way that, you know what, they can write a song that has all of those same uh, everything that you're you're looking for that that meets your rubric, but if you're pigeonholing them and saying you know oh I'll, I only want this this paper or if you got other students that are are able to recite something to you or they're able to to draw something or create a comic book like there's different options that could be done to express that hey I have learned or I have mastered this work. But if we keep things limited to this is how I want it done, this is how I need to have it received. So that way I know that you have learned everything. Just little stuff that can kind of think outside of the box as opposed to the traditional style approach that we have. We grew up doing and now we're we're, we're handing that off to each generation going forward. So just little stuff that we can do. What I hear in some of those recommendations are almost like indicators for potential audits, right? And in your book, mm-hmm. you have classroom resources and curriculum audits. And th- this actually mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of your book, along with like a lot of the transparency and the vulnerability that you exercise as well, which I think is really important for people to uh, see so they can do the same thing because there are whole people attached to these whole systems. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. when we try to do these things, it's important to have that awareness and try to uh, seek honesty and healing while we're actually trying to provide a service. And in this case, you know, you exercise that awareness while also encouraging something like curriculum audits, right? And mm-hmm. a question I would like to ask you before I ask one of my final questions is, what are questions you would ask to audit instruction? And like, what practical steps would teachers or teams of teachers could make after an audit? Because a lot of times audits happen and then the information sits somewhere and rots in a Google Drive, right? Um, but what do you believe would be practical steps uh, for something like a, 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 a an instructional audit? 
I, I would I would start with have I involved my students with this process? Right. So sometimes we we get stuck with you know meeting these the, the weekly lesson plan standards or whatever it is. You know we're required to do these things. I, I I would start with how much feedback have I gotten from my students in this capacity, and then the next part to that would be how relevant is this to my my students? You know, we we hear response, culturally responsive, culturally relevant, culturally mm-hmm. sustaining. And I think all of those are very important. But I I've heard teachers, I've worked with teachers who will say, "Oh, my kids aren't engaged," and 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 then they'll talk to this, another teacher with the same student, and it's a different. It's a different situation, right? The, the kid, oh, I don't have any challenges. You know, the kid seems very engaged, motivated, and those kind of things. And and so we don't necessarily think about, well, how much input does having a student or influences having a student's, um, you know, their thought process, what we're doing, is it relevant to them? Are there things that they're going to find engaging? Uh, I was just talking to my daughter yesterday, and she was telling me how they were reading Hamlet. They watched Hamlet in her class, and I'm like, Dude, no one talks like that. <laughs> like that that Shakespeare. I mean, don't get me wrong. The brother knew who, he had words. Yeah, man, yeah, had he, had words. Yeah. <laughs> he had bars. He had bars. However, yeah. I don't know what the heck he was saying. I'm a grown. <laughs> I'm a grown man with a PhD. I yeah. don't know what he was saying. Like no one talks like that. Yeah. So is that relevant to the class? Now they say, oh, it's a classic and blah blah blah. But I still have not understood why we need to teach Shakespeare, for example. Right. Those are just little things that I think if we pay attention from the beginning, how much student influence have I gotten into this lesson or this this unit that I'm planning? And is it relevant to them? If we start there, I think that will make a difference. The last piece that I would just add to that is just what kind of relationships do I have with my students? People think, oh, school is all about just the academics. Well, I tell you one thing. If you have kids that respect you, that you have a good relationship with, they won't want to let you down and they will be more engaging and more willing to try harder and do their best. If they have a level of respect and relationship with you. I've actually been on po- uh, one podcast. We talked about Shakespeare and, and those mm-hmm. tensions and where I've landed with stuff like that is mm-hmm. that if you are going to teach it, because it's definitely one of those things where I feel like a lot of people teach it for the sake of tradition, but those yeah days have to be done. If you are going to teach Shakespeare, you have to make sure that it's a reason relevant for the times and the, and, and the students that you're teaching. Not just because it's cool to do, not just because that's, to your point, that's what you were taught and that was the gauntlet you had to go through, um, but because mm. there is meaningful knowledge that's relevant to, you know, whatever other subjects they have to know about. For example, if you're talking about Othello and you're talking mm-hmm. about like interracial uh, marriages yeah. and dynamics as a topic, like that makes sense, you know, uh, to to include. Or if you're really trying to understand and you're studying story structure and character development, that makes sense. Or if you were in a theater or art school, that makes sense. But you have to really be intentional. And this idea of asking, what is it, how is it relevant or how could it be relevant? That's not always asked with Shakespeare. It's frequently unasked about (laughs) Shakespeare and it needs to be asked about everything that a student does because there's just too many missed opportunities to help students like grow into who they're meant to be, not who 
we want them to be or who we feel like we are meant to be, right? Mm -hmm. The last question I want to ask you is just to take a moment to imagine that we are at the okay. Sheldon L. Aiken School of Equity and Advocacy. What's happening in the classrooms? What's going on with the professional learning communities and the administrative offices? Going back to the idea of what's relevant, I mean, when we think about what skills a student should have once they graduate from high school, we tend to not work in silos. Like, I'm assuming in your job, you have a team yeah. or folks that you, you work with. And so I would be big on project-based learning, cooperative learning type of uh, structure. That that would be the highlight, not necessarily doing a lot of solo things, uh, but I, I, I believe it's really important to develop those social skills, the interaction skills. You know, a lot of times, again, a lot of kids, you'll see them graduate from high school and they just, they've never worked it with anybody. They, they, they've just only done those 10 page papers. And so they, they haven't really been able to collaborate. They haven't really had a, a leader, a quote unquote a boss or whatever it is. And so I think part of school is to prepare our kids outside of school, whether that's if they go on to college or whether they uh, go right into the workforce or military, things like that. At the end of the day, they need to be at a working team. So that would probably be the highlight of everything. Uh, I, I would be big on ensuring that my staff look like my students. Uh, that would that would be another piece that I think would be really important, and not only just the staff, but also the content that my students are receiving on a daily basis, not on the holiday months, you know, not just Native American Month and Black History Month <laughs> and Pride Month. All these, no, every day, every day. These are the, they they see that this is something that's normal to them because again. I mean, I live in Idaho, and I can think of all the different adults right now who have, I, if I could tell you how many times, Brandon, folks walk up to me and they just get so excited or they're just awkward. They don't know what to do because <laughs> they ain't seen folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they just have no, they, they all they go off of is, you know, rap music and, and movies and all these, like, that's all they got to go off of because they've never really covered much content outside of Dr. King and Rosa Parks. They never really had a lot of the experiences with their peers. So they just don't really know what to do. They mean well, but they just don't really have that experience and that knowledge. So I think those kind of things we could teach in the grade levels to show them various books outside of, you know, your stereotypical situations when it comes to black folks or even brown folks, other folks, right? Yeah. But showing a, a cadre of different aspects, and that should be on a daily basis and not just during your holiday months. No, indeed, indeed. Well, Dr. Akins, it's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, folks and fam of all walks and talks. Please check out the book Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. Dr. Akins, can you let the people know where they can find you? You can find me at leadingequitycenter.com. That's the website, that's the main hub. If you're on Instagram, I'm at Sheldon Akins, and that's E-A-K-I-N-S. Uh, other than that, yeah, find me online. This spin of the LP with Sheldon Akins left me with a few things to reflect on and process, and I often reflect process through poetry, so during this season, I will be exercising that practice more often. Bias is bacteria. It generates benefits for us, generates deficits for us, and good hygiene keeps the benefits up, and neglected cleansing keeps instruction stuck. Stuck in fear, stuck in preference, 
not for what's best, but to ego deference. So what does it mean to audit this? To have an instructional revenue service, one where we don't tax, but fund. Fund endeavors to speak truth to power, ask truth to power, seek youthful power with the primary muscle that people interact with being the heart. Thank you, Sheldon Akins, for your time and your book, Leading Equity, Becoming an Advocate for All Students. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook, or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.